This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Billy Barton from Population Zero. Today is July 3rd, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview outside of my house in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Billy. How are you, Joe? So tell me uh, where you were born and in what year. <clears throat> I was born January 1st, 1978, in Westerly, Rhode Island. I think I was the first kid, first person born in, in Westerly, because I remember uh, there's a picture of me and my mom in the paper. What, why was it that you were the first person born? Was it a really rural area? Uh, it was January 1st. Oh, oh first person, like first like year. it was like 6 p.m. at night or something, or 6 mm -hmm. in the morning, yeah. Right. What was Westerly, or is Westerly like? I have no idea. We, uh, my parents moved, I grew up on a farm in upstate New York in uh, the Finger Lakes, about 45 minutes west of Syracuse. My parents moved there when I was two in 1980. They bought uh, a 10-acre farm. And, uh, is it a functional farm? Yeah, it was a completely self-sustaining, organic farm. The only groceries my mom bought were like milk and ground beef. Um, we had like three to 400 Rhode Island Reds, uh, good wow. egg-laying chickens. So. We're the first ones in the area to have a farm stand, sold eggs, sold all the seasonal crops, strawberries, tomatoes, pumpkins, um, and a lot of preservation, canning of food. Were you actively involved in, in all of the Oh yeah, oh yeah. We, uh, I had two older brothers and a younger sister, and both my parents were uh, public teachers, so they had the summers off. So we just uh, farmed all summer. And in the winter, there's a lot less to do on a farm, especially if you don't have like cows. It's a lot of dairy country up there, so we're all in school anyway. So, right. so how how does punk come into your life when you're living in a rural area with a lot of chickens? Uh, it really didn't. Um, my parents were completely against uh, television, especially cable channels. Um, they were against video games. In the summertime, we weren't allowed in the house until dinner time. We, you'd wake up, you'd do chores all day, and then if it wasn't dinner time by the time you were done working, then I usually just ran around in the woods with my dogs. I had a friend about I had a friend about two miles in each direction, and sometimes I'd hike out and visit them. But uh, punk didn't honestly. Uh, come into my life for a very long time that's um, a long story let me go back for one second yeah. and go into that but what, what was your parents issues with these things like were they coming from a really conservative point of view or a really liberal point of view or something they're else they're both um, my mom's from Buffalo my dad's from uh, Long Island in New York City and um, my father's side is from Hungary he was, uh, my grandmother was from Hungary, they're all Hungarian, and my mom was like German-Dutch from Buffalo. And they're both uh, socially conservative, but my dad was pretty politically liberal. Um, Did he flee from the communists? Uh, his, my grandmother who came over, her father, my great-grandfather, served in the, uh, it was Austro-Hungary at the time, and he served in the army in conflicts prior to World War One, and basically he saw World War One coming. Right. And he was a carpenter who built furniture and carriages in Hungary, and then when they came to America, he put the wood paneling on the first automobiles. And 
And um, when my father went in the army, he flipped out because he thought it was the same where each man has one wool blanket and a rifle and that's it, you know. Um, but uh, they didn't, They I, I think that um, they're both city kids, but they both really wanted a family and they wanted to live in the country and they did that. And I think like a lot of people, the uh, a lot of the just commonplace vulgarity and baseness of society was a big turnoff to them, whether it's in the media or just everyday interactions. I remember my mom would get really upset if she heard damn or hell on TV. You know, turn the TV off. You know, it's like family ties or something. But know? they weren't religious? Uh, not, yes, but you know, like, like most Americans, they're religious. In, in pose, but um, we, I was baptized Episcopalian, but we went to a Presbyterian church uh, every Sunday for throughout my childhood. Um, my mom, up until recently, was a deacon in the same church. Um, so there, there were church-going folk, but they weren't evangelical, or they weren't they didn't have the Bible at the dinner table or anything like that. So. So then how is it then that you come into punk, you know, living out there and, and with that kind of environment? Well, um, my parents got divorced when I was in eighth grade, and the farm, much to my adult regret now, the farm was sold off for pennies. Um, so I went from living in the woods to living in a small town where I went to school. I was bused to school from the country. It's like over an hour bus ride. Uh, the town was called Scanny Atlas, New York. Were you in public school prior to that? In the yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so once so so eighth grade, my parents got divorced. So right there, I'm starting high school uh, in in a small town now, which which uh, and my mom was just working all the time now because my oldest brother was in college, but then there's three kids still so she was a teacher and a coach so she was never really home so then I just started hanging out with my friends all the time you know comic book shops back then there were these things called arcades <laughs> you could go to arcade, and yeah. five bucks you could uh, get a pizza soda go to the arcade get a comic book and you know it was a fun time mm -hmm. um, so it never really occurred to me that like you could go to a store and buy music music for me was like my dad's doo-wop cassettes and my mom really loved like Johnny Mathis and and Neil Diamond and stuff so is the radio and it's like oldies radio and I never realized you could there were stores where you could go and like buy music so once I started going to like the mall uh, and I, you know I had friends who were years ahead of me in this you know they're all getting ACDC tapes and Metallica and yeah. stuff like that and I was like oh, I didn't realize you could take five or ten bucks and buy a cassette so throughout high school which was 92 to 96 um, yeah I mean, I mean what, what do you find at a mall in the 90s I, I was I was getting like Pantera, Metallica, Megadeth, Sepultura, Danzig, Slayer. Um, so you kind of immediately went to harder edge yeah, stuff. Yeah definitely. And surely your parents were probably not pleased with... Um, my dad definitely wasn't pleased, but I was living with my mom. 
and she has always been of the belief she'll tell you herself that her kids are all unique and they do their own thing and um as long as we're not you know being criminals she's she, as long as we're happy and healthy she's happy for us um so she put up with a lot of teenage evenings with <laughs> heavy metal coming out of my door um and then after high school, I immediately went in the Marines, and is in the Marines where I met a lot of great guys, but I met two really good friends uh, who were in my battalion, but they're in the next company over. And one was from Arkansas, one was from Colorado, and we were all into, one was really into rockabilly, one was really into horror punk, uh, and they turned me on to a lot of stuff. I had a friend from California who total Southern California guy, and he turned me on to a lot of that SoCal stuff. And, um, but still, I, I wasn't like, I didn't really know of DIY. I didn't, you know, I got, I got the hell out of the military summer 2000, kind of went back home, like got a job at the graveyard shift at a gas station and went to community college for one semester because I felt I had to because I had the GI Bill. And community college sucked. I did one semester and quit. It was just like high school. Okay. I knew more than most of the teachers. Um, so then I was with, met a girl at the time and moved with her out to Indiana, which was pretty isolated. Uh, it's northwest Indiana, Valparaiso, which is about 20 minutes from the southern tip of Lake Michigan, which was cool. But uh, there's really nothing going on. There's no bands. Uh, I hung out with a bunch of uh, guys that I worked with who were all skaters, but since it's Indiana, the scene was like 10 years behind the East Coast. Right. So I worked on some skate zines out there called Starch, which was cool. And uh, after two years, I moved to Ithaca, New York, and cooked at Moosewood for two years and uh, there was like one punk house and two punk bands in all of Ithaca and after a couple of years those kids all split for bigger cities and um, that's when I basically packed my backpack and uh, just dropped everything one, one night and uh, quit my job, broke my lease had like 90 cents and I was heading to Asheville. North Carolina? Yeah. But, uh... How were you getting... Are you driving down there or what? Nah, I, um... Well, my best friend in Ithaca grew up in Philly. And she's about 10 years older than me. And, uh... She said, well, on your way to Asheville, stop at my friend's house. At least she'll put you up for the night. Because it was January at the time. It was January 06. It was like the week after Christmas. And uh, she said, stop at my friend's house. I don't have her number. I haven't spoken to her in seven years, but here's her address in West Philly. Knock on her door and then tell her to call me. So I, with my last 39 bucks, I got a bus ticket to Philly and I had my rock with water and all kinds of stuff. I was prepared to like sleep in graveyards until I got south where it was warm enough. And um, so I came to Philly. I walked from Center City to 48th and Baltimore 49th in Baltimore <clears throat> and a woman's name was Rachel and I knocked on her door and uh, a couple of her housemates were pretty 
befuddled, but they told me she was around the corner of the co-op. Turns out... Yeah, Mariposa? Yeah, it turns out it's Rachel Markley, the woman who started Mariposa, is like a childhood okay. friend of my friend Ellen. Yeah. So she put me up that night, and I stayed for about a week, and then I couch surfed around and met Bull and all these other people, and um, ended up in Badger House at 48th and Concessing, and immediately started going to shows at the church, at Halfway House, at the Rotunda, at all kinds of places. I basically, wherever I saw flyers, I would just go to shows, and then I just started meeting people, meeting bands, and that's when I really found real active punk, and I became radicalized by DIY punk, because then I just started doing my own stuff. Did kind of a like long-winded way. I, I didn't want to say, like, oh, I just moved to Philly and no, I discovered No, no, that's good, because that, that's exactly what I like. I like yeah. the, the journey. Uh, so did you find when you came into Philly that it was a welcoming community for you? Um, yes. Uh, very much. A lot of people, like Rachel, the Lapa Luxury House, um, there's a couple other houses, all the people around Mariposa. The, it was amazing that they were as cool as they were. They didn't have to trust me. Yeah, you know, I'm six foot three, tattooed guy wearing combat boots and utilitarian gear, and they didn't. They could have been like, "Go away! Who are you? Get the fuck yeah right! You're not staying here," you know. But they gave me the benefit of the doubt, and you know, I mean, I got right to work washing dishes and uh, helping out with projects around their houses. Like I definitely did my best to pay my way when I was couch surfing. Did you feel comfortable in these kind of punk houses that were probably sort of different than other places that you probably lived in before? I felt really comfortable really quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't seen anything. There had been one house in Ithaca, but I didn't live there and I didn't really enjoy hanging out there. Um, most group houses are vile. And... Um, but I felt that it, it was something that I, I had unknowingly had always been looking for, and now I had just serendipitously landed in it. Um, people making their own food and, you know, working on their own houses, and they're not just watching five hours of TV every night. They're, they're, come, they're making music, they're making art, um, they're part of their communities. It, it, I just... And they were wel welcoming me, and so I knew it was good-hearted right from the start, and I tried to return that you know, in the same way. Did you see any kind of connection between living there and then your time when you were on the farm in terms of uh, kind of like self-reliance? I did. Uh, I actually saw more of it in, in familiar with my time in the military, um, living out of a backpack, living on very meager means, living very utilitarian um, you know this must be done so we have to do this now and here's how we're going to do it and we're all going to do it and it's like alright right on you know and you get stuff done um, sort of progressive living so we'll talk a little bit about the military time um, did you intend on going into the marines leaving high school for years prior to that or was that something a conclusion that you came to as you got out of high school no, I, um, I knew f I was a complete fuck up when I was in uh, a kid and I was in junior high and high school. And um, 
I was really angry and I was really probably a complete asshole and uh, I've been arrested a couple of times for winning fights and um, at least it was winning fights yeah in uh, my uh, I, I uh, my dad was in the army his brother my uncle was in marine force recon so I knew I didn't want to go to college I didn't know what I wanted to do so I figured I'll go in the military and I'll travel and I'll figure it out from there. I, I wanted the challenge, the physical challenge. And then and what, what year was this? Well, I, I went to boot camp. I graduated high school June 96 and I was in Paris Island by August okay. or July, the end of July. Um, but I enlisted, it's called a delayed entry program, the debt program. And you can join the debt program up to a year before actually enlisting as long as you have your parental permission my mom was plenty happy that like i was doing something so oh, okay so she had no issue then <laughs> no nah, everybody was kind of glad the school high school never gave a shit about me guidance counselors never even i think the guy talked to me once he's like what do you want to do i was like i'm going to the military and they're like all right and they just never bothered with yeah, me yeah, it's again. easy enough for them my yeah. senior year of high school <laughs> i went to school every day at noon uh, had a couple study halls, had art class, and I just lifted weights after school. And like, they got me out of there with like 65s across the board, because you know, they knew I was just going to the military. And they're like, all right, he's out of here. So. Yeah. And I guess we weren't engaged in a war at the time, so there was no great fear that you know we were going to go get blown up. No, no, yeah. Uh, so you went in, and how did you adapt to basic training and then you know the whole process uh, at the start? Um, it's pretty shocking. Uh, it's way harder than anything you could possibly imagine. Um, it sounds corny, but it's a lot like the first half of Full Metal Jacket, except they can't physically hit you. Right. Um, and actually, right when I was getting out, they were phasing out profanity. Oh, really? Yeah. Is, is it actually been phased out? Yeah. D drill, drill instructors aren't allowed to swear so it's almost comical you'll see guys like trying not to laugh and they're like you friggin dust eating son of a gun milk drinking you know it's like what but uh i adapted pretty well i mean it's because i'm so large they made me the guide of the platoon yeah like you look like you should be in the marines i mean you know some yeah. of you might not see that but yeah yeah no i um i, I honestly I, I flourished i made sergeant in three and a half years I uh, I was a guide in boot camp, and then I was a radio operator right outside of boot camp, which meant I had an extra four, 50 pounds on my back, but I was next to the lieutenant, the platoon sergeant, the whole time. So I got a pretty good idea of what was going on and how stuff gets done. And um, physically, I excelled, and um, I liked the discipline. It did a lot of good for me. I, I learned a lot about myself, and... Um, Traveled all of, over the world. You think that kind of knocked out some of the, the kinks that you had, like in terms of your previous bad behavior? And, you know, definitely, definitely. Um, it's funny. Everybody says, "Well, no doubt the military changes you," but I was worried before I went in that it would truly change me, and I wouldn't be into the things that I was really into, like um, you know. But actually, it. Uh, Actually, it makes you more of who you are 
through denial. I guess what I should say is like if if you love punk rock and you spend four years where you're not allowed music and punk rock, then you're not suddenly going to just not be into punk rock. You're you're gonna be more into it and you're gonna go crazy when you finally get it back. So um, if anything, it like it, a lot of the rough edges were chipped away. I learned a lot of valuable lessons about myself and other people and about mental and physical limitations and about what I really wanted out of life. You know, I really valued family and friends and good food and sleep <laughs> and like clean, dry feet a whole lot more. So. <laughs> yeah, all these things surely you had no access to for four years. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they sent you overseas then? Where all the yeah, oh yeah, I spent three out of four years overseas. Um, I was a infantry rifleman, and uh, I, uh, for a while, was part of a. It's called the Marine Expeditionary Unit, and uh, we were they call it special operations capable, which just means that you're helping out on things that normally you wouldn't be doing, um, which for me included being part of. The TARP platoon, which is Tactical Air Rescue of Personnel. And where was this happening? This was, um, this was, uh, well, uh, expeditionary unit from Lejeune is gonna go around the Mediterranean. Um, I think if you're in Pendleton on the west coast, you go to like Australia and Thailand and stuff. Um, so my platoon was tasked as a TARP platoon, and I myself, with about a squad's worth of other guys, um, went to Cliff Assault School. And um, uh, let's see, we went to Brown State Park, and then we ended up in Spain teaching them how to climb their own cliffs. Um, so having that kind of training and schooling um, put me in units that were deployed fairly often and I went all around the Mediterranean, I went around the Caribbean, I went to parts of Asia, I did training all over California, the mountains and the desert. Um, I tried to get to Southeast Asia but I would have had to re-enlist because I was running out of time. Um, yeah. So what did, so why did you decide to leave then? Pretty much, I uh, I never intended to stay in for 20 years, make a career out of it. Um, all my friends at the time were in school or they were working, and I'm hearing all these stories about fun times and you know whatnot. And um, I had done what I set out to do in four years. Four years seemed like. When you have three and a half years to go, you're like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? But then when it's done, you're like, wow, it flew. It seems like you did a shit ton of things in those years. I mean, the time must have moved if you were doing all of that stuff in those places. No, I did a lot, especially considering most deployment, or the longest deployments were only six months. Um, and yeah, I was in Kosovo, which... Um, the combat action ribbon for, although uh, I never had to shoot anybody. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what was, what was going on there and what, what you were what you were doing there in Kosovo? Kosovo, um, a lot of a lot of people 
criticize the military, rightfully so, but I think, especially punks, but I think a lot of people don't have any idea what they're really talking about unless they've gone through it. Um, in Kosovo, the Christian Serbians were committing genocide against the Albanian Muslims, and if it wasn't for um, UN and NATO intervention, it would have kept going. So us being there, there were Russians there, the French were there, I think, there were British paratroopers there. If we weren't there, it would have been slaughter. So you can write your you know little crust lyrics about the Armageddon of nuclear war or you can actually go somewhere and stop a genocide which is what we did yeah um, right after that was spring of 99 I think so right after that there was a huge earthquake in Turkey we went there and set up tents for two weeks um, we were in Albania and Macedonia before Kosovo uh, doing security for engineers and CB units that were building humanitarian camps. Um, I was in Haiti for four months at one point. Basically, uh, my company was there reinforced and we provided security for CB, Navy CBs and Army engineers again who were digging wells, building concrete structures and docks, um, all good things. So. So do you ever find yourself at odds with people who are, you know, like you said, like coming up with crust lyrics against the military, but really don't know what they're talking about? They're almost kind of regurgitating what's been said by every previous band. Before yeah, <clears throat> when um, I did have a little bit of <clears throat> conflict with, I call them the upper crust, um, when I first came to Philly, and they're all in West Philly, which is hilarious because it's the most gentrified, affluent part of the city. Um, the same people who were strongly advocating for ex-convict rights were also telling me that as a military veteran, I had no right to be in punk. They would really say this to you? Yeah. It, like, amazingly insulting. It, it is ridiculous. Like, um, um, yeah. It, there was talk about banning me from metal shows at one point. It, it was, I was like, this is unbelievable. Fuck all you people. Like, But nobody actually, this all comes back to me, <clears throat> you know, through other people word of mouth. Nobody had the balls to actually <clears throat> say anything or do anything to my face. Um, you could probably rip their heads from their yeah. bodies. <laughs> but uh, it's just a lack of thorough thinking on their part. It's It's... It's a lack of, of life experience on other people's parts. It's, it's hypocrisy. It's, it's a lot of not necessarily punks, but just students of punk who are reiterating what they think they should feel and believe. Mm -hmm. See a lot of it. Yeah, I imagine a lot of these people come from affluent backgrounds and have no connection to anybody ever serving in the military. So they don't actually really meet people who are veterans because they're sort of insulated yeah. away from that. It's less than 1% of our society that serves. And um, like I said, I, uh, I'm the only um, veteran I know of in the scene other than maybe a handful of other guys who did a year or two and then uh, got dishonorably discharged or you know, 
did drugs in the military and they got screwed. So how do you, how do you generally feel about people when you hear that kind of a story come out of them? Um, I honestly I don't really care or th- really think too much about it. Um, part of me in the back of my mind I, I think about guys <clears throat> when I was a squad leader and platoon sergeant who popped on piss tests or who um, did some kind of racist shit or went uh, UA unauthorized absence which is what the Marine Corps calls AWOL um, and I had to deal with them and all I saw was guys just making what for them was a difficult life way more difficult and I, and I saw that as a lack of intelligence and commitment and foresight um, but then again I don't really know anybody else's story and I really can't judge um, everybody's got their reasons and then they gotta live with the with the conclusions right. so do you still stay uh, keep friendships with the guys that you serve with no <laughs> um no uh, and there's my, my two good friends we stayed in touch with for years but uh the one went back to Arkansas got married had one or two kids and just kind of like went off into family life and the other one is uh, a a arc welder now and he's in a union and every six months he's in like a different city building a bridge so it's impossible to stay in touch with him um, a lot of the NCOs in my platoon <clears throat> had a reunion in uh, Boston a year or two a couple years after we all got out but nobody contacted me until after the fact so I was like, well, fuck you guys. <laughs> you know, like, but why do you think that they didn't contact you until afterwards? I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I really don't know because we were all NCOs together. And, um, I mean, there's cliques amongst people in the military just like everyday life. You know, you've got the people you have to work with and live with, and then you got your actual friends. So um, I think getting out of the military and getting on with your life I think sometimes a lot of people don't necessarily want to continue that communication or that connection Um, it's like well I'm done with the military now this is behind me I'm moving on to this other thing and honestly like if you know, I, if any of those guys were to call me or something, it'd be cool to say hi, but, like, what, what do we have to talk about? Like, you know, we were together for, like, one, two, three years, you know, and did some cool shit, traveled around together, but, you know, and I've been out for 13 years, and, like, they're all, half of them are cops now. Uh, you know, they, it's just, it is what it was when it was there. I could imagine in a way uh it would be kind of similar for ex-cons like once you're out you're out and you don't really want to you know you're just done with that phase of your life and you don't necessarily want to like keep that going in a way by staying in touch with all these people right um the commonality is no longer there Mm -hmm. 
so. This is a little off topic, but at, at the time you, you were under the Clintonian don't ask, don't tell policy, oh, yeah. which, which has since been rescinded and is not the case anymore. So how do you feel about that change in the military? <clears throat> that they got rid of don't ask, don't tell? Yeah, yeah. I think, kind of I think it's a good thing. Um, I think it's a good thing. There were, uh, there were two guys in my battalion, which it was pretty much known that they were homosexual and no one cared. No, but they involved with each other at all or just sort of independently? Independent, yeah. but um, you know, somebody walks into your barracks room and you're making out with two other guys, like it's pretty much known that, you know. Yeah, right. But um, no, nobody cared, like that's what people don't get, like the, the common soldier, sailor, airman, or marine doesn't give a shit like as long as you can do your job because our lives depend on each other and like what gets your rocks off like nobody fucking cares and honestly like the two um obviously they weren't out but the two like perceived uh gay men and yeah, no, nobody cared nobody bothered them nobody harassed them and and speaking of don't ask don't tell one, one thing that a, a point that i've always wished somebody would make i guess i'll make it right now is um <clears throat> when they before they uh, repealed that, and they you'd hear talking heads and news people always throwing out these numbers like, oh, you know, three thousand people a year are discharged for homosexuality. Um, that's not entirely authentic because during "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." If you want it out, all you had to do was tell. Mm -hmm. So if you know if they're discharging two or three thousand a year because they came out as gay, well, a fraction, a tiny percentage of those people were probably actually homosexuals. But what sort of discharge would you wind up getting if you if you came up? You know, it would be an administrative discharge. It wasn't like dishonorable or anything like that. It is called like an administrative discharge. They basically like nullified your contract and it wasn't good but it wasn't bad and you just went the fuck home right. so you think that's largely just like kind of like an easy way out for folks who oh it was I've s i saw countless guys in my own platoon who just couldn't hack it they they realized six months in that joining the marines was the worst decision they ever made um you know the military wants people so if you're 100 pounds overweight they'll give you a weight waiver and you can join and then your life is hell until you drop that 100 pounds. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that. So all you have to do is go up to the battalion commander and say, at least at the time, <clears throat> late 90s, <clears throat> and say, sir, I'm gay. You know, guys would go in front of the company commander and say, sir, I suck dick. And he'd be like, no, you don't. You're full of shit. And like, sir, I'm gay. And like, you told, so now you're out. Right. Like, people don't realize that that's what those numbers are. Right. They're not actually kicking out. Yeah, I never, I never thought of that before. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think largely people don't know that. Yeah, and the actual couple, you know, people that you were perceived homosexual, like, nobody cared. It wasn't a problem. They wanted to serve, and they served and did their job well, and that's all that mattered. It's the shitbirds that couldn't hack it that they're like, well, that's my ticket out. I just have to, right. you know, swallow whatever pride I've left and, like, fake come out and then they'll just give me an administrative discharge and I saw it tens and tens of times through the years in my own company and battalion and platoon.
Why do you think that the idea never really gets out that, that the soldiers and Marines don't really care, for the most part? I mean, I'm sure that there's some that do, but like you're saying, that most of them don't really seem to care, and that idea never seems to kind of move out into the world. Because they're not asking the enlisted ranks. They're, they're talking to, you know, generals who are basically politicians, and they're talking to cultural... Uh, you know, pe- figureheads in the culture war. You know, they'll they'll interview like a, a a priest from a church, and they'll interview some general who has his retirement coming up, and he's going to become a politician or become part of a think tank. Like they they don't talk to the, the guy in the foxhole or uh, the mechanic who's you know working on her ship fixing the jets and stuff. Like they don't want to because they know it's bunk. Right. You know. It, the people at the top, some of them are very, very, most of them are very, very smart. Um, that's another thing I think a lot of punks don't realize is, uh, is they're not just like Terminator robots. Like, they're very smart people and they, they research all kinds of things and they know what they're trying to do. So, you know. So do you often or sometimes find yourself in the position of having to defend the military to, to these punks, uh, you know, when they make statements that are just clearly wrong? Um, no, because no one's, again, no one has, has had the guts to say anything to my face. Um, although I have plenty of people have been like, well, what was it like? Like, tell me about it. Like, where'd you go? You know, what was Korea like? You know, what was Haiti like? Stuff like that. Um, that's fun. I always like telling travel stories. Um. I've never had to defend it. You know, I'm sure people would like to call me on it, but it's just never happened. Right. Yeah. So you're in a band now. Are you in multiple bands now? or just? I'm the... in two active working bands right now. So it's Population Zero, and what is the other band? Population Zero, and uh, the other band is the Charlie Few. Um, what does that mean? Like, what is the... <laughs> the Charlie Few. Uh... It really just kind of came to me, but um, the band is, is, is very positive lyrically um, and musically, too, I think. And so positive like what? Like what are, you try- what are you trying to express through the... Are you writing the lyrics and what are you... For, uh, for Charlie Few, I write all the lyrics and all the music. Um, and then there's a guitarist and a drummer, my uh, friend Mattitude, my friend Sean. And it um, started off just being songs that were a little too uh, melodic and upbeat for Population Zero, which I write most of the music for. Um, so I wasn't just going to let these great songs go to waste. So while Population Zero is darker and more metallic, uh, I wanted a simpler... There's five guys in Pop Zero, so I wanted a simpler easier band so it's a three piece I write all the material and uh, we all live in South Philly so it's easy to practice um, and basically there's a lot of uh, I see a lot of like crustier than thou you know harder than thou metal kids all trying to be more evil than thou I was like this is ridiculous I'm like we, we got work that needs to be done we need some some get up and get to it music so um, that was that was point in Charlie Few. So wait, what did the the name of the band mean? Oh uh, well, 
being a positive band, I don't see a lot of positivity. So I guess the Charlie Few are those of us who um, get things done, lace up the boots tight and get the job done. Um, and that's the positivity of it. Let's get up, let's do what we gotta do, and then we're gonna be the better for it. The, the name of the EP, the tape, was The More We Try, The Less We Fail, which is a lyric from the business or an old uh, British and the oi band. boy band. Yeah, I like them a lot. And um, that's what I try to convey. I'm, I'm tired of hearing uh, songs about... Uh, the older I get, the less tolerant I am of apolitical music to begin with, which is why I don't really listen to a whole lot of metal anymore. Um, but I didn't... You know, everybody loves the Unity song from Op Ivy. You know, everybody loves these these really catchy, upbeat, feel-good street songs. Rise Above. Yeah, yeah Rise yeah, Above. Yeah, yeah. Like, But nobody in Philly, at least in the past couple of years, is doing anything like that. And it's That's so good. easy. I don't know if everybody's just concerned with, like, being cool or being tough, but, like... I think it's super tough to like just throw your love out there and uh and let everybody know i think that that's um i think that's a flaw i've noticed with philly though in a large part in the scene is they're constantly looking at other scenes and, and punk history and other places and other bands and it's like i think that people aren't looking at the context they're in so much like the city that we're in right now and they're looking too much at the established US or, or UK punk history and try, their behavior is 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 affected by that so they imagine it's like it's Boston 80, 82 or UK 80 yeah or, I, I don't know how many times people have been like well I wanted to start a band that sounded like this. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, every time I started a band, it's like, I want to just get together with my friends and make music, and whatever music we make is what we make. I'm not trying to sound like 1987 Japanese hardcore with a little bit of Boston, 82, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. that's ridiculous. Like, Yeah, it sounds like a mad scientist, like, adding ingredients <laughs> to the test. Yeah, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't understand how you can have something beautiful and original come out of something so pre-planned. Yeah. Like, the music you make is what you make. If I jam with two or three or four other people and it comes off sounding like Sisters of Mercy, then so be it. If I jam with a couple people and it comes off sounding like Slayers Haunting the Chapel, then that's what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I think that the cynicism and sarcasm tends to be people's default setting sometimes because it kind of creates a barrier between them and, like, kind of like what you were saying, like, their actual genuine human feelings. So yeah. it's much easier to be, you know, take a snotty or a defeatist approach to everything and therefore, if you were a loser, like, it's not your fault, it's society's fault. Yeah. It's this person's fault. It's the system's fault. You know, whatever yeah. bullshit that people want to say. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I just see, I see a lot of replication. I see a lot of, like, GG worship. Um, I see... The fucking worst person for anything. Yeah, right? The, the, the guy that threw his shit around and had a small Why would you look up to him? He's, he's like, I don't know, whatever. People are going to be into their thing. Like, why would you eat McDonald's, but people eat McDonald's, so... 
but there's a lot of like gg worship they're you know the db crust scene they're constantly stepping on each other's toes either with the same riffs or the same themes yeah, there's not a lot of space to move around if you want to sound like a yeah. db band i mean it's like you've got two inches there's one move. beat <laughs> there's one beat. DB. all the hardcore kids you know everybody's everybody red get in the van and you know they're all just doing that it's like well, what about here and now you know I don't know. I don't want to say everybody does this because that's certainly not the case, but I see a lot of like 30 year old ideas and themes coming up again and again, and I don't really get it. Like a, a big thing now, I've waited over 10 years, 15 years for this to happen, but DIY goth is actually coming back, and nobody's calling it goth, but it's totally goth. So, like, what, what is that like? It's a lot of like old crust punks that like stop being angry and they started getting sad and they've got a flange pedal and a synthesizer in their band and now like holy shit everybody realized how cool goth actually was it's not just a fat kid kid in the food court with a Marilyn Manson t-shirt like it was all throughout the 90s yeah yeah if you listen um, to like Only Theater of Pain by Christian Death there's like a million yeah. miles between that and Marilyn yeah. Manson yeah and at the same time like if you listen to some of these bands who are all good and I'm sure they got good intentions but it's like, yeah, this is pretty good, but if you listen to stuff from the 80s, it's way fucking better. I think it's all, it's a case of, like, younger folks thinking that they, not really knowing their past. It's like, this is, they think it's a new thing, and for them it is. But I don't think they realize, like, if, if you put on, like, the Crimson Scarlet record, which is great, but it doesn't hold a candle to anything from the from the eighties. Yeah, but it was like genuinely innovative. Yeah, like it's actually it was a new idea. Yeah, like it's people like, are terrified of new ideas. No, like I like Crimson Scarlet. I like Specters and Arctic Flowers. These are all the big bands doing the dark thing now. But it's like if you listen to Sisters of Mercy, Christian Death. Bauhaus, all that old stuff, like, it's already been done, and they did it way better. And they don't sound the 30 same. years ago. Like, they fall under the same umbrella, but they all have, like, really individualistic yeah. sounds, yeah. which I think says a lot for them as innovators in yeah. the type of music, rather than replicators. Yeah. I mean, you see it with indie rock, and, like, you know, uh, the hipster scene and all that. It's like, I don't know. If they think it's original, and you could tear your head out trying to tell them, like, this is an affectation and it's not real like what are you doing like learn your learn your past like build upon it don't just like be a bunch of pastichists because yeah. that's all you're doing yeah um but again that's not everybody there, there's some amazing bands and amazing by the majority philly is really amazing creative and cool but that's one of the few criticisms i could i could bring out so in talking to folks, one of the things I like to get to is I mentioned to you that the youngest person I talked to was 20 and the oldest was 68, and you mm. kind of fall in the middle of this, mm. this spectrum of people. Uh, so what I like to ask for the people who are kind of on the younger end, edge is, like, what do you think that still draws people into this thing that at this point is edging on 40 years old? Uh, you know, it's been around for a while. We kind of talked about the different permutations of people looking back to the past. But, like, what do you think is still, like, drawing young folks into this and keeping it something that's not... You know, there's something that is still vital in some way. I think it's vital because it's absolutely necessary for a certain amount of people. 
I think that, well, for the majority of the people, I think that they like the music, they like the volume, they like the aggression, they like the partying, they like the clothes and the hair, they like being um, provocative, they like get wasted. There's a lot of people with chemical dependency issues in the scene. Um, and there's a lot of people that's all they do is is go to the shows and party and have some service industry job and they live in a group house and and that's that's awesome. I mean that's what I did all through my twenties. Um, you don't, but you don't feel that like this is so awesome now. Like I mean, there's no, no, it doesn't seem like that's no. I, I got to a point where uh, it's been fully eight years. So I got to a point about five six years ago where I was tired of just being the guy who went to the show. I wanted to contribute. So um, I started, I picked up a bass at age 30 and basically taught myself bass. And I've been in three good bands since then. We've all recorded. Uh, Pop Zero is about to go on its third national tour. And I put on shows, I played shows, I recorded other bands and put out their stuff on cassette and CD. I've done anthologies, um, countless benefit shows. Um, I've helped other friends who had venues. Because um, if you're, if you're, I remember being young and like seeing the old guy in the corner and being like, what the fuck's this guy doing here? You know? And now I am that old guy. <laughs> But if you're contributing, you know, it's a big difference in being like the old creep who just gets drunk and leers and stands in the corner and being like, you know, somebody who's active and contributing and productive and healthy for the scene, you know? Uh, I think one thing the Marines taught me was leadership by example. So if I want more bands and I want more venues and more good shows and I want uh, benefit shows to help out a cause I believe in, I do it. And hopefully younger guys and gals will see that and uh, try to do the same thing. You know, I mean, I made a zine a few years ago called How to Put on a Punk Show. And it just listed everything like, all right, here's, it's hard to do in shows and you show up and there's no PA or no one's there to work the door or, you know, any number of problems. And it's like, all right, well, here's really what you got. Boom, 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 boom. You know, like follow this and you can do, you know, you have to do those things. People need to be shown what to do. A lot of people want to play it safe. You know, they'd rather just get a 40 in circle pit all night but I get a lot more out of making a situation happen where other people can have fun and circle pit all night. I, I don't really need to be doing that yeah. anymore. I'd rather construct larger things for my friends and for my scene. Yeah, that seems to be the true essence of punk. And I think it's something that often is kind of unique to that scene is that you can go in there and if you, if you have the desire and if you utilize your brain, you can actually do things. Yeah. Uh, and you don't need like a piece of paper that certifies that you are now allowed to do the following thing. It's yeah. like if you want to do the thing and you do it well, you do it. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of teaches that how to do these different things that other scenes, it's just sort of handed to you. 
don't actually physically engage in the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not hard. But so many people ask me, like, well, how how do you do it? How do you put on a show? Like, how do you you know secure a venue? And it's like, well, these these aren't hard questions if you're already involved in the scene. If you're already going to a show every week and the great thing about philly is that there's multiple shows punk and metal every week and there could be a in sh- the best part is there could be a show in west philly where there's 40 people and then there's a show in south philly completely different show with 40 other different people there's another show in fishtown in some kid's basement with 30 p- other different people like if you're going to shows and you're going to make friends you're going to see the same people if you're proactive and you talk to the people working the doors and who maybe live at the house where the basement show is happening, then that's the first step. You can't be afraid to talk to people. You gotta, at the same time, you have to do what you say you're gonna do. You have to be honest and straightforward with money because even though most shows are still five bucks, touring bands need money. And if you're not being honest and fair, people are gonna learn real quick and then your shit's fucked. But it is amazing that people are still stuck with the five dollar. It blows it, my it, mind. Like in 2013. It, it blows my mind. It's based yeah. on like 1982 or Fugazi in the early 90s yeah. who were able to draw thousands of people. And I still get people who come to shows like I don't have any money, and it's like you have a 40 and a new pack of cigarettes, and you, you, you know. No, I dealt with this all the time. Yeah. The crusties who are like who think that because they have some sort of politics or because they're dirty yeah. or they choose to be poor and live in a trash can. Yeah. They deserve to be handed this thing for free. Yeah. While everybody else does the work, like yeah. the bands who need to put gas, which is really expensive, into their vehicle and eat food so as not to die. Yeah. Punk rock does not owe you. <laughs> no. You know? No, and in you owe kind of, punk rock. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I think people in, the, in for a while kind of fell out of the knowledge of doing shows because this is something that came up in some of the other interviews because Philly had R5 or still has R5 who was doing shows that were a little more punk in the past and maybe not as many of them today. But people were able to go to these shows that were well organized and relatively cheap and on a regular basis and i think that, that some people kind of lost the connection to how to do a show but it seems like in recent years that's kind of picked up with people doing more diy shows in houses and basements and things like that it seems like there's a shit ton of shows now that there yeah. used to be a few years ago uh there there are um yeah i've heard countless exaggerated stories about R5's DIY roots and Lancaster Avenue in the 90s and all this shit. I'm sure it was great at the time. Um, but that was a quarter century ago. I don't give a fuck. Um, I'm living now. R5 is a multi-million dollar organization that does maybe two or three punk shows, four punk shows a year. And it's, they're usually all ages at the Barbary, which is good. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing three or four a month, and I'm not charging 15 bucks, and I'm not having the same one or two or three local bands open up every show I put on for years. Yeah, yeah. Like, enough of the nepotism. Like, there's some great bands in Philly, like, learn who the fuck they are. But see, that's the thing. Like, they're completely detached from the actual they, they've scene. They've gone in a completely different direction. Yeah. And I think that like it's, it's essentially like people like you and others who kind of immediately sort of rush in and fill, fill that gap. Because yeah. it needs to be there. It needs to be like, 
the shows for the people and for the younger folks. Uh, there's bands who have no interest in playing a basement show. There's bands who think that they're better than that or that they've somehow earned more than what they're going to get from that. But as soon as you start thinking that way, you're detaching yourself from the street scene. And that's where everything is and everything starts. You know, you think you're too good for, to play with a street punk band because it's just dumb kids with charged colorful hair. It's like, well, fuck you, because that's where your fan base that you're trying so hard to cultivate starts, you know, is the kid who sees the flyer and who goes to see the show at FDR because you're not charging money or who goes to a $5 basement show. Um, I know it's the most scenes, and this is certainly true of Philly, boil down to less than, I mean, maybe a dozen people that are doing all the work uh, when it comes to booking shows, bringing in touring bands. Um, it's a very small amount of people that are making a large amount of stuff happen. And the people that are making stuff happen are, at least myself, I mean, I construct what I want to see. If I want to see Nightfall, Combat Crisis, Plague Dogs, and FTS, well, I'm going to put together a show with those four bands, and it's going to be awesome. And, you know. Well, I guess you can know <clears throat> that they're going to be young kids who are going to be coming to your shows who are mentally taking notes. Like you are, oh, yeah, you are I hope positively, so. yeah, absolutely. Like you may never even know it, like on an individual basis. But there are kids who are just absorbing what you do, and will someday, you know, look up to you or other people who did shows. Because I know, like, you know, for me, when I was a kid, I would look at the generation that came before me and how they did the things, and they were like these people were so cool and they were only maybe really just a few years older than me but that few years made a big difference um, and it, like you know you're planting all these seeds in, in folks heads so it kind of assures that there's going to be another generation of folks who do something like that because they're seeing what yeah. you do I do I do see that um, I do get a lot of love and respect from a lot of kids which is nice because I put a lot of time and effort and money into the Philly scene uh, over the years. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I hope I, I hope uh, they're influenced enough to <clears throat> pick up the hammer, as it were, and uh, start striking on their own. Um, I think some of them definitely will, and other people may go off in different directions or different parts of the country, but I true. think that they take that experience with them um, and take it forward into life. Not everybody, but I think that there are, there are always going to be these people who wide-eyed and kind of like open-hearted absorb this thing and take it forward. So when you're planning like the kind of positive seed that you're planning by doing like an ethical show with like genuine considerations for how people are treated, yeah. you set sort of, you know, what they would say would be a threat by example. Uh, and then that, I think it makes a big difference on young people, even when you don't directly know. Well, that was, that's part of, going back to the Charlie Few, that's part of the reason I consciously write positive lyrics and have uplifting melody. Um, I think that's the reason why in eight years of being very active in the Philly scene, there's almost never been uh, fist fights. 
Um, there have been fights, but it's always somebody from outside coming in. You know, some like passive aggressive asshole that gets drunk and thinks that punk rock is about being the toughest dude in the room. And it's like, all right, you don't understand. All 50 people in this room are friends. Uh-huh. And we will all fuck you up right now if you don't check your shit. And you get the kind of crusty traveler that comes through town who doesn't have an investment in the scene or an investment really in anything. In anything, than yeah. Themselves. Yeah. And then expect to just be able to do whatever they want to because, like, yeah. it's anarchy, man. Yeah, yeah. And then Pointless Fest gets shut down and never happens again. You know, I mean, all kinds of shit. Um, no, Philly's good about schooling itself. There's, uh,. Yeah, if there's any bullshit, it's dealt with. If dudes are out of line with girls, it's immediately and violently dealt with. Um, any kind of racist bullshit, um, I've actually never even seen because apparently it was uh, they had some problems in the '90s and it was dealt with uh, then. There and, was a uh, big skinhead problem uh, in the area. It wasn't so much Philly because I think Philly people are it's a little more cosmopolitan, but like Allentown, Atlantic City were the big really? hotbeds in the late 80s, early 90s. It was also kind of a big media thing. You know, they were on Geraldo and all that, yeah. so there was a lot of like groups of guys who would come to shows and they would be in trouble. I've, I've heard uh, my old band Blood Bomber, one of the guys was in an older band called The Sucks, and um, he would tell me stories about just brutal fights with Forty bottles, and you had to. If you didn't put your fucking foot down and literally physically drive these fuckers away from your scene, they were just gonna ruin it. You know, so it's cool that uh, that happened because here we are in 2013, and that shit's non-existent still yeah. on the Philly scene. Yeah, that is, that is great. Well, super. I really appreciate you talking to me, and I think you're doing doing great work. So I'm glad that you're uh, cool. kind of keeping it positive. Yeah, excellent. Try next. Yeah, dude.